Okay, if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to preach a message entitled, The Coming Convergence of Heaven and Earth. The Coming Convergence of Heaven and Earth. And this month on Sunday nights, we're going to be teaching about the second coming, the return of the Lord Jesus. So I'm sort of teeing the ball up with that, uh, for that tonight. Tonight's message is called The Coming Convergence of Heaven and Earth. Now here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to touch two themes, two themes in the scripture that um, begin in the book of Genesis and they go all the way through to the, through the book of Revelation. And the two themes are convergence and restoration. Okay? Convergence and restoration. Now, the, the word convergence isn't a biblical term, but it's, it's described all over the scripture. And I'll, I'll, this Ephesians 1 passage, we will, we will use that passage to, to define convergence biblically. And this other term, restoration, is a biblical term. It's, it's constantly used through the scripture to describe what we're actually moving toward. We're moving toward restoration, the restoration of all things, precisely. So let's look at this passage in Ephesians 1, and I'm going to invite you to stretch yourself just a little bit tonight, just to, just to lean in a little bit and, and, and hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. I'm going to use several Bible passages, but I want to I draw out these two concepts. They are so powerful. The idea of convergence is so powerful, and specifically when I'm talking about convergence, I'm talking about convergence of heaven and earth. The convergence of heaven and earth. Heaven coming to earth. Everybody wants to go to heaven. I want to tell you something. Heaven wants to come to earth. God wants to manifest here. And at the end of everything in, in Revelation uh, 21, he says uh, he's going to make his tabernacle among men. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. The Father is going to tabernacle again among men. Well, that shouldn't seem so strange because he started off tabernacling among men. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. I'm going to read the New Living because it just says it in real plain English. It's a, in, in, in this passage, it's actually a pretty decent translation. It says, verse 9 says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. Verse 9, he says, God has revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Jesus. And that mysterious will is that God is going to fulfill his own good plan. And then verse 10 says this, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and earth. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and earth. Amazing. Right there in Ephesians 1, the Lord, uh, Paul, the Lord gives Paul at the beginning of this powerful, potent gospel letter, the plan of all the ages. 
And the plan of all the ages is this, that Jesus Christ will be Lord of heaven and earth. And heaven and earth, he says, he will bring them together under Jesus' authority and rule. Now, that shouldn't sound too crazy to us because most people are familiar with Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been granted unto me. Now you go and make disciples, right? He says, I've got all authority in heaven and in earth. Now you, I'm deputizing you, go and make disciples. And the point of that is, He's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manifest my authority through you, my believers. And that's when he goes on and he says, in my name, you will cast out demons. Now, how could a human being command a demonic spirit to do anything unless that human being was operating in someone else's authority that had authority over that demon? You see what I'm saying? We can't cast out a demon in our own name. Why? Because we don't have authority over demons in our own name. But in the name of Jesus, we have authority over demons. Why? Because Jesus has authority over all things in heaven and in earth. Heavens being, you know, the the realm where demons live, the, the realm where angels live. And in earth, Jesus has authority in, in, in all of it. Heaven and earth, Jesus has authority. He tells us to go in his name and preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to cleanse lepers, cleanse sick people. That doesn't come because we have authority in ourselves. It comes because Jesus has all the authority. So just say that. Say, Jesus has all authority. In heaven and in earth. He's got it all. Now, Ephesians 1 is telling us a slight bit more information. And Paul calls it a mystery that was hidden. But this this slight bit more of information is not just that Jesus has the authority, but that there's a day coming when he is going to take his authority and he will reign over heaven and earth together. Did you hear that? Heaven and earth together, will come, they will come together and Jesus Christ will rule and reign over heaven and earth. I'll read it again just so you get it clear. This is the plan. At the right time, He, that's the Father, will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Now that broad concept is the concept of convergence. Heaven and earth operating together. Heaven and earth operating together. Convergence. Could you say convergence? Now, convergence is, it sounds, it sounds, you know, like a little bit uh, technical, but it's so powerful. I'm, I'm going to give you a little, just a little bit of a foreshadowing. You are a point of convergence between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth is converging in you if you're born again. I'm going to get to that in just a second, but it, it's such a powerful thought. 
Now, this other term that I want to talk about is restoration. The restoration of all things. Now, when you think about the word restoration, it simply means we are going to put things back to their original state, right? Have you ever had somebody, you restore a car or you restore a house and you put it back to its original state? You make it like new, right? You restore it. Now, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Acts 3.21 says he's at the right hand of the Father until the times of the restoration of all things. And what does that mean? That heaven will keep Jesus and Jesus will come. He will return at the time that God has already set aside, he's already set it apart, to make everything like it was in the beginning. Okay, are we, are we together? If we're together, say yeah. Good, you're with me. Which means this, simple thought. We're moving forward to the way it was in the beginning. Right? We're moving forward to the restoration of how things were in the very beginning. Is that making sense? And so when he says, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, he says this has been a mysterious thing that God was doing in Christ, but at the right time, the plan is that God's going to join everything together under one leader, Jesus. That means this, that we're moving forward towards a restoration in which heaven and earth are joined together. Well, if we're moving forward toward the restoration and, and what we're moving forward to is a convergence of heaven and earth, it must mean that at the beginning, what? Heaven and earth were together. Right? If we're moving forward toward the restoration and Ephesians 1.10 says what's getting ready to happen, the plan is that he's going to put everything together under Jesus. It must mean we are going to the way it used to be and the way that it used to be is heaven and earth were together. And that's exactly right. Think about Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. What do you have? You have Adam on the earth and what? God on the earth and they're hanging out talking naming animals enjoying one another and what we've done is oftentimes we've thought about that original sort of uh connection between god and man and and we 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 got this word garden and for us, a garden is a few rows of cabbage, a few rows of corn, carrots, if you're really good at this thing, some potatoes and some flowers. And what we've made is Adam, we've made him this holy farmer. And I, and I want to tell you, Adam wasn't a holy farmer. He was holy and he did work the ground, but his main job wasn't to be a farmer. His main job was to tend a sanctuary. And that garden that God put Adam in wasn't your backyard. Okay? Have you ever been, anybody ever been, there's this mansion in North Carolina called Biltmore. Ever been there? A percentage? You can look it up online. If you go to the gardens of the Biltmore mansion, okay, 
You walk around paths, there's buildings, there's organics everywhere, but then there's structures, there's awnings. I mean, it's fantastic. You're in this outdoor terrarium with so much color and beauty and water and paths and rocks and, ah, it's awesome. I just have to believe if God was going to put, I mean, it's acres and acres and acres that that built more garden. If God was going to put Adam in his own garden, he's not going to put him in your backyard and give him some carrots. He's going to put him in a garden that's way more suited to God. Now, when God makes a place, like when he paves a street, he does it with gold. And when he makes a gate, you and I use steel and iron. God uses pearls. What sort of garden did God make for Adam to walk around and live in at the onset of creation? I guarantee it wasn't some broken down backyard with four rows of vegetables. It was perfect. You're talking about the environment before sin ever entered the world. You're talking about an environment where everything is animate with the glory of God. You're talking about an environment where the fruit and and the vegetables and, and all the organics, they were all touched with glory. There's no curse on them. Heaven and earth were in one seamless creation. God was walking around in that place. What is a garden that's fit for God to walk around. What is that like? That's what Adam was in. And Adam's job was to tend that garden. And that garden wasn't just a garden. It was a sanctuary, if you will. It was, it was a tabernacle. It was a place for God to meet with man, a tabernacle. And what it makes is this. We understand that, that Adam, yes, his job was to look after that sanctuary. But Adam really, in creation, is the first priest. He's the first priest looking after the first sanctuary. The sanctuary is the garden. That word garden, when you, when you look at it in the different languages, you find out it's the same word that we get, paradise. Where Jesus said with me, to the, when, he, when Jesus said to the thief that was uh, on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. That derivative word that, that, that we have in, in Genesis 1 through 3, That word garden, it's the same concept when you compare the two languages. My point is this. Heaven and earth were operating in one seamless creation at the beginning. Adam was the first priest over a sanctuary. And so then what happens is this. We begin to understand that heaven and earth, this seamless creation, when in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, it was one creation. That was God's original intent. When God makes a thing, and with the first way we see that thing, his original intent tells us so much about the purpose of that thing. And the purpose of creation wasn't that heaven and earth would operate separated behind a veil, but it was that heaven and earth would operate together seamlessly. Convergence. Convergence. And so if you can, if you can get that concept... That God always wanted heaven and earth to operate together. That the original creation was the heavens, plural, and the earth operating together. And that God was walking around in the garden with Adam together in fellowship. That gives us so much clarity on the direction of things. 
of the whole plan of creation, of where things are, were supposed to go. And here's what we find. Sin enters, rebellion enters humankind. And in that rebellion, somewhere from that point forward, this veil comes between heaven and earth. And there's this separation. And, and so what happens for us is many generations later, we're down the road on it, and it's, it's weird for us, this idea that heaven and earth would, would be together. But if you look at ancient Hebrew scholars, if you look at their writings, they always conceive of heaven and earth as one unified creation. And so when the Bible says we're moving forward to the restoration of all things, what it's saying is we're moving forward to heaven and earth dwelling together. Can you catch that? If you're with me, say yeah. If I lost you at convergence, say yeah. <laughs> all right, you're in. So, here's what I want to get to. When you read the book of Revelation, at least three times, hear me, at least three times, the scripture says real clearly, the new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven. It's going to come down out of heaven. At least out of heaven means in plain view of the earth. At least. We're going to see it and... Revelation 21 explains real clearly that the earth and the new Jerusalem will interact to this place where the nations will be able to bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. So there's an interaction between the nations of the earth and the new Jerusalem. Now, if your brain didn't explode right there, don't worry, I got a lot more for you tonight. I told you I was going to stretch you a little bit. Here's what, I wanna, here's what I'm actually coming at. I want to come at a little bit our comprehension that Christianity is about showing up at church, being a good person, praying a simple prayer. I, I want us to get completely out of that mentality and get into this, that God has had a plan since the onset of creation to see his kingdom manifest across the entire globe in fullness. Christianity this, this covenant that we're in with Christ is about the manifestation of the kingdom of God. That's what this thing is about. Our buildings, our hymns, our pews, our padded seats, our worship teams, if they are not serving the purpose of God's glory covering the earth and the full restoration of all things and the convergence of heaven and earth, we should just throw them away, honestly, because that's God's agenda. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 makes it uber, uber clear. He says, this is what's been hidden. This is the mystery that God's been hidden. Here's the plan. The plan is to bring everything together in heaven and earth under Christ. Do you think the church is a vehicle that God wants to use to make that happen? Or do you think the church is just sort of hanging around until God makes that happen on his own? This is not a trick question. The church is a vehicle God is using to make the restoration happen, to make the convergence happen. Now, here's what I want to point to, and I want to draw, try to draw this into us. So I had to lay, lay some theological groundwork there. But I want, to, I want to draw out eight key points of convergence in the Bible. There's, there's way more than that, but eight key ones ending with the second coming. And I want to just, just show you this theme of convergence 
all the way through the scripture. So you see that this is something that's been a thread that God has been, he's been working since the onset of creation. Okay, the first one is the one I've been just talking about. This convergence of heaven and earth in the garden. Genesis 1 through 3. The garden was a sanctuary. Adam was a priest. God was uh, walking and talking and communing with Adam in the garden on a, like basically on a daily basis until sin entered. And at that point, Adam and Eve are removed from that garden sanctuary. And we don't know exactly where the veil falls, but somewhere after that, this veil falls between heaven and earth. But here's what happens. In Genesis 3.15, God says to Satan, he says, I am going to crush your head, but I'm going to use a man born from a human. I'm going to use a human being. What a thought. I mean, that's just the craziest thought. This archangel, Lucifer, who's been with God, walked on the mountain of God, seen all these amazing things with God. He rebels against God. He's cast out of heaven, and God pronounces, prophetically pronounces a judgment on him and says, I am going to crush your head with the seed of this woman. I'm going to use a man to destroy you, archangel. Come on now. What's that mean? He goes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring a hero out of humanity. I'm going to bring a hero forth. He's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise this heel. He's going to crush your head. And that speaks, from that moment on, that speaks of God's plan in the gospel. That speaks of Jesus. That speaks of this concept of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning. And it speaks of this idea of restoration. It's already there by Genesis 3. We're going to restore things. We're going to get, we're going to get sin out of the way. We're going to get Lucifer out of the way. We're going to get it right back. That's what the Father is saying right there. It's powerful. So the garden is this first place of convergence. Then the story of history begins to, to move forward through the, the generations of, of Adam and Eve and, and, and their sons. And, and we go Tower of Babel and, and, and we go you know, Flood and, and, and Tower of Babel. And, and, and then we get to this place where God... He calls this guy Abram, and he says to Abram, he goes, I'm going to make a nation out of you, like the stars of the sky. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And Abram changes his name to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, changes his name to Israel, right? And Israel ends up in Egypt by Joseph's wisdom, and a king arises that doesn't know Joseph, and they... That Egyptian king enslaves the Israelites. They're enslaved for 400 years. And then God raises up a deliverer, Moses. Just giving you Bible survey right now. And he says to Moses, first he shows up in glory in a bush. Then he says to Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go so they can come and worship me in the wilderness. Right? Right? God does the ten signs. He leads, uh, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. And then they go to a mountain. I'll give a, a attaboy to the first person to name the name of that mountain they go to. What is it? Sinai. Whoever said it. Who said it? The little guy. Yes. Way to go, guy. They go to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, 
You can find this in Exodus 24. You can find it in Exodus 33 and 34. Here's what happens. God comes down on the mountain. And God invites Moses to go up. Moses takes 70 elders of Israel. They go up, and it's fascinating what happens on the mountain because as they're walking on the mountain, the language actually changes in the chapter from them being on Mount Sinai to it now being described as them being on the mountain of God. And what happened was this. It wasn't that God put a little bit of his glory on the mountain. It was that God opened up a channel and heaven and earth converged on the top of that mountain. And to this, and to this is what happened. It says Moses was walking on Mount Sinai. And then as Moses walked on the mountain of God, read it in Exodus 24. He and the elders looked and they saw the God of Israel. And they saw the sapphire sea. And they ate and they drank on the mountain with God. See, when God comes, he doesn't just leave heaven. He brings heaven. And that became a convergence point. The top of that mountain became a convergence point. Let me just read this passage. I know this is a bit theological, a little stretch, but this is so rich. If you can just tap into this a little bit, I'm telling you, we're going to feel the glory of God falling in this room in just a moment. Exodus 24, verse 10. They saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. I'm telling you, it wasn't just that fire fell. It was that God came down, and he made a convergence point between heaven and earth. And so here's what ends up happening. Moses gets lost in the glory. He's up there for 40 days. And then the Lord begins to give Moses on the mountain a bunch of details about a tabernacle that he wants him to build. It's pretty fantastic that God would go so detail-oriented. And what you're going to find out is that the writer of Hebrews tells us that God was showing Moses the true tabernacle in the heavens so that Moses would replicate it on the earth. And why would Moses have to make everything just like the real tabernacle that's in the New Jerusalem? Why would he have to make it just like it? Why? Because God wanted to create a convergence point. He wanted to create a point on the earth that was just like the throne, and he could, con- he could have a convergence point of heaven and earth. So here's what happens. Exodus, you know it. Exodus 33, 34, again, uh, God comes down on the mountain, fire falls on the mountain. It happens in Exodus 19, it happens in Exodus 24, it happens in Exodus 33, Exodus 34. The glory of God is falling on that place. And what's going on there? God has made Mount Sinai a convergence point. Why? Because he's showing Moses what heaven's like so that Moses can build on earth a tabernacle that resembles the one that's in heaven. Am I making any sense? You know, Jesus, remember this, now keep this in your mind. When the disciples asked Jesus, hey, teach us to pray, what did he teach them? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, say it with me, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth, how? As it is in heaven. What is that prayer about? Well, it's part of our liturgy. We did it in the denominational church every single Sunday. 
Uh, wrong answer, Phil. <laughs> that prayer is about the kingdom manifesting on earth with heaven and earth converging together. It's the, it's the prayer Jesus taught us in Matthew 6. He said, pray for God's kingdom to come, to manifest on earth just like in heaven. Do you see it? It's right there in the language, convergence. So that's what Moses builds. We have this convergence in the garden. We have this convergence at Sinai. And then Moses builds a tabernacle, the Bible says, according to everything that he saw in the heavens. And it's powerful. I love reading these passages. So this is the third convergence point I'm pointing to. Pointing to. It's Moses' tabernacle. Because when, when you have a convergence point, you have a couple things going on. You usually have fire. You usually have smoke. And if people mess up in that environment, somebody dies. There's at least two times where the fire and the glory are falling and dude, uh, dudes are being rebellious. And as they're re being rebellious, because there's too much God going on, you can't sin in that place. Do you, do you know how like, uh, people might say, well, you, 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 know, you can't lie in church? You ever, did you ever say that? Don't want to lie in this place. Well, I, I wouldn't either if there was a convergence and fire and glory falling. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Acts 5, they, you know, they literally lie in, a, in an atmosphere of glory that's so heavy that they instantly, they, their spirit is separated from their body because sin cannot dwell in that spot. It's so intense. Leviticus 10, same thing. Nadab and Abihu, they go into rebellion and they instantly die because glory. Uzzah, he, he, he treats the, the holy with prof, profanity, reaches out and touches the ark. When David's bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, he falls dead. Why? Because glory is in the place. I'm telling you, if we had a church, any, any place, any community of faith, if we could have the glory of God falling in a convergence of heaven and earth, and one guy fell over dead, that'd be it. CNN would be out there. They'd be accusing us. All the people that are paying all those money for haunted houses, they'd be coming like, what the heck? People die at their church? Yeah, they die up in there. You don't want to go in there. I mean, it would so captivate the imagination of everyone. People are paying billions of dollars to go to haunted houses, scary movies, and to jump out of airplanes. Just come to my church. It will freak you out. We need the glory. We need a convergence. So here's what happens. Moses sets up the tabernacle. Now, here's the thing. You'll find this. There's scholars that have written about this uh, in detail. They believe that in Moses' tabernacle, when, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he wasn't just stepping into a place with a good presence of God on it because the Ark of the Covenant is in there. The glory of God is in there. Many scholars believe this, that he would step into that place and it was a convergence point of heaven and earth. So he's actually stepping into the very throne room of God. Well, no wonder that guy needed to be pure. No wonder he couldn't go in there with sin in his life. 
No wonder he had to wear bells around his ankles. So in case he fell over, they could hear he's dropped dead. Because he wasn't just stepping into a place of rich presence. He was stepping into the throne room. See, that thing on earth was made just like the throne room in heaven. It was a convergence point. Are you tracking with me? So watch this. Leviticus 9. They make the tabernacle. They consecrate the priests. Washings. There's so many things in Leviticus 8. so powerful. But watch this. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord. God is there. Fire comes out from before God and the fire that comes out of God burns up the burnt offering. Think that through. The glory fire that falls hits the offering, the sacrificial offering, and that thing catches on fire because of what is coming out of God. There's this convergence of heaven and earth happening. So powerful. Consume the burnt offering, consume the fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their face. Well, I guess so. Now, here's an interesting little point. The charge to Moses regarding the tabernacle was that there needed to be fire on the altar night and day. And it was by them burning, uh, creating new, new uh, sacrifices and putting those sacrifices on that, that altar of, of, of burnt offering. But here's the point. No human ever lit that fire. God did. When man comes with the sacrifice, the glory of God falls in fire. And that fire that they tended all the days of their sojourn, it wasn't a human fire. It was the glory of God that had lit that fire. You're a priest. You know what you're called to do? Tend a fire on the inside of you. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So that's a third convergence point, the tabernacle, the holy of holies. Fourth convergence point, I already hinted to it, is the tabernacle of David. When David, first thing he does as the king goes, gets the Ark of the Covenant, he's bringing it back. Uzzah reaches out. He's going he's to stabilize the Ark. He's trying to do a good thing, but he doesn't know that he's, training to, uh, he's treating the holy thing as profane. He's treating it as a common thing. And he doesn't realize this, but the fire of God, the glory of God that was already residing over the Ark under uh, Moses' tabernacle, now this thing is getting supercharged with glory again. Just by him reaching out and touching it, he touches the glory of God and he falls over dead. And they have to drop the ark over at Obed-Edom's house and the glory of God is ministering in Obed-Edom's house. Everything that guy has is prospering and getting blessed. David says, I must get the ark back and bring it back to me. And he comes, finally realizes it's got to be carried on the shoulder of the priest. They bring it back and they set it in the tabernacle David prepared for it. And he sets up singers and musicians 24 hours a day, 288 paid singers and musicians to worship the beauty of holiness. When you read David, you find this. He says things that make it so evidently clear that there's this convergence point going on in the tabernacle of David. He says, I want to gaze on your beauty and dwell in your, your house all the days of my life. And when you hear David and he's talking about his encounters with the Lord, you can't tell if he's talking about the heavenly throne room or the earthly tabernacle. You can't tell. Why? Because as he's in the earthly one, he's touching the heavenly one. It's a convergence point. David said it this way. 
Psalm 26, I love this one. I love this one. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. What's he talking about? He's talking about the tabernacle of David where the glory of God is dwelling in plain view. And the the spirit of prophecy was so potent in that place, I want you to catch this, that in the Psalms, David literally records the incarnation, the first coming. He records the sufferings of Christ in his incarnation. He records the crucifixion fully, He records the resurrection completely. Then he records the second coming and he records the ages to come. He's he's staring into the glory of God and God is showing him the future. He's just writing down prophetically in songs what is going to happen in human history. He's unfolding you know, mystery and truth in a way that you and I can't even comprehend. David has got the whole story by staring into the glory. There was a convergence point. The spirit of revelation was so strong in that place. He, all, but basically, all of David's psalms were written from that place. All right, the next convergence point is Solomon's temple. And what did they do? They took the worship, the 24-7 that David had been doing, they combined it with the Moses tabernacle, which they had still kept going at Gibeon. They combined both realities. Solomon builds the temple. And you'll remember this, 2 Chronicles 7. In chapter 6, Solomon cries out to God. And he actually says, God, remember your servant David. Remember him. Remember, his whole life, how he wanted this glory to dwell. Because remember, David, Psalm 132, says, I won't rest until there's a dwelling place for God. I won't rest. I won't give slumber to my eyelids until there's a dwelling place for God, a place for the glory of God to dwell. And what he was saying there wasn't just about the tabernacle of David. He goes, God needs a temple. So he he saves his whole, the whole time he's king, he saves up his money, gives it all to his son. His son builds the temple. And on the day that they put the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, here's what happens. When Solomon had finished praying, 2 Chronicles 7, 1, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It's just like Moses' tabernacle. It's the same exact fire. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshiped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. It was another convergence. When you see a convergence happening, usually there's this explosion of glory. We, We see it in... In Moses' tabernacle, we see it on Sinai. We see it with David in the ark. We see it here at the temple. The next one is the incarnation. Now, this is interesting. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the express image of the glory of God. And John chapter 1 says this. The word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. The glory of God tabernacling among us. 
What is Jesus? The glory of God tabernacling among us. Sounds like Moses' tabernacle. Sounds like the temple. Sounds like David's tabernacle. Yes, it's the same story happening again, except for this time, it's the, it's the second person of the Godhead. He's God with us. He's Emmanuel. He's tabernacling with us because he's, he is the convergence point. In John 1, remember Jesus reads Nathaniel's mail. He goes, oh, look, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He goes, What? You're, you are the Messiah. You, you are the chosen one. And Jesus goes, are you impressed with a word of knowledge? He goes, he basically goes, hey, buddy, I'm Jacob's ladder. Angels are going to be ascending and descending on me, and you're going to get to see it. I'm the convergence point of heaven and earth. I mean, come on, man. He said, and most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus Christ walked around his entire life with an open heaven over him, and he was the convergence point between heaven and earth. And everywhere he went, he was the manifestation of God's glory, the express image of the glory of God. Everywhere he went, he was a mobile tabernacle, God dwelling among us, fire, glory, healing, power, dead being raised. Why? Because here he is in a human, and he's all God, all man, and he's fully the manifestation of the glory of God. And everywhere he goes, glory is manifesting. To this happens, people are running to him, clinging to him. He didn't even pray for some of them. They just touched him, and bam, glory hits them, and they get healed. Come on. It says power went out of him. I got news for you. Power is still coming out of him. If anyone will touch him, power is still coming off of him. That's so awesome. He was the convergence point. Well, now watch this. Crucifixion, resurrection, the veil of the temple is torn. Why is the veil of the temple torn? Because the glory that was supposed to be residing in the temple is now out of the box. And when Jesus is resurrected and he shows up with his disciples, remember they gather in the inner room, and he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes life into them. God breathes into dirt and created Adam. Jesus, in resurrection, breathes into disciples, and they receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life through the breath of God. That's the born-again experience. And then... Oh, so good. On Pentecost, which most scholars believe that Pentecost happens on the exact anniversary of God coming down on Mount Sinai with Moses. So there it is, Pentecost. They're praying for 10 days and physical, visible fire shows up and lands on every one of them in that room. Oh, I want to be in that prayer meeting, man. Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, 
I just feel like sometimes we're just too satisfied. This is New Testament post-resurrection and physical, physical, physical glory fire shows up and lands on them. It's burning on their heads. Oh man, I want that. You know, we, we get a little zephyr of the Holy Spirit like, oh, it's glory in here. Whoa, whoa. I want fire on my head. You know what I'm saying? They get baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Fully immersed into the glory of God. Fire is dousing them. They're speaking in other tongues as the Spirit's giving them the utterance. What happens in the city is this. There is the sound of a mighty rushing wind all over the city. The people come, not because the disciples are acting drunk. They come because they heard the sound. What is that sound? It's a convergence that's happening. Heaven is touching earth. And it's coming in fire. It's always fire, smoke, or death. In the new birth, a convergence happens. In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a convergence happens. And to me, the way I see it, I think of the new birth. I know there are two experiences, but the new birth and the baptism are supposed to be everybody's experience so that we can be the tabernacle. That's why Paul was rightly able to say, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Just like Solomon built a temple and fire fell and the glory of God filled that temple. You are a temple. And when you got saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit, the glory of God through the person of the Holy Spirit came inside you living in your spirit and you were filled with fire. Just like Solomon's temple. Suffer, you are a living stone. You're alive with glory on the inside of you. You're a convergence point. Hear me. You are a convergence point. Heaven and earth coming together in one spot. That's you. That's why they that believe in my name shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall cast out demons. They shall raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers. Why? Because heaven is inside of you. That's what we are. We're a walking convergence point between heaven and earth. And that's why Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go. Why? Because heaven and earth is converging in you. And everywhere you go, you're bringing heaven. You're bringing that glory. You're bringing that fire. Oh, it's so powerful. Well, here's the thing. It's not just individual temple. In fact, the New Testament mostly speaks of us corporately being the temple of God. Most of the time, the you are the temple is a plural you. You together are a temple of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, verse 22, I love this passage. I want to attain to what this passage is saying. But Ephesians 2, 22 says, You are being built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. 
What does that mean? That means you with the fire inside of you, me with the fire inside of me, you with the fire inside of you, you with the fire inside of you, 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 all of us living stones. When we will get out of our pettiness, get out of our sin, get out of our division, and we will come together and be that place of dwelling for God, quit worrying about what I'm getting out of it and give it back to him, all the glory to him, what happens? God builds us together as a dwelling place for his spirit. And that's why in Acts 5, when glory was falling in their midst, if you lied in that place, guess what? That doesn't work because glory is there. (laughs) We're a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They tend the glory. Why would he make us a kingdom of priests? Because he wants us to tend the glory. He wants us to minister to him and be a place of manifestation of his glory. Am I making any sense tonight? Well, the final convergence that I'm going to talk about, it's not the final one in scripture because there's a further one even after this one. But it's when Jesus returns. When he returns, I started off with this. God is going to join everything in heaven and earth together under him. When the Lord Jesus returns, the scriptures are clear. Heaven is going to come on earth. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the day in which the Lord Jesus returns He's going to remove the usurper, Antichrist. He's going to remove him from the planet. And he is going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. Isaiah 16, 5 is very clear. It says, he will rule in the tabernacle of David. Isaiah 2 says, he will teach us his ways. He's going to instruct the entire earth in the the kingdom of God. And there's going to be a manifestation that comes from Jesus. And it's going to be glory. And glory is going to wrap the planet just like water wraps the sea. What's it going to be like? He's bringing us back to the garden, heaven and earth dwelling together. Beloved, if we kind of think that church is sort of about me being a good person, just kind of being nice, I don't want to cuss anymore, you know? You know, cheating on my taxes, and it's bad. And we think that's Christianity, we have completely missed the boat. You are part of a kingdom. Our God is a king. Eternally. He's a bridegroom. He's radically in love. He's a father. He's tender and kind. But his kingdom is to manifest in fullness across this earth. That's what the vehicle of the church is about. That we would be manifesting the glory of God everywhere we go. And that when we come together, we're built together as a dwelling place for God in the spirit. Why do we tend 24-hour worship just down the road? Why? Because we want to be a dwelling place for the glory of God to manifest. 
I just have this vision of the glory just burning in that room. And you bring in the guy with the demon and he hits the parking lot and he goes, whoa, what's going on in here? And you drag that guy into the room and by the time he hits the threshold of the door, he's in and the demon is out. It's just that easy. I just, I just have a belief that what they were experiencing in Acts 5 in the New Testament is available to us today. If we will be that kingdom of priests, tending his presence, recognizing these, these themes of convergence and restoration, realizing that we're moving forward to the way things used to be, heaven on earth, which means this, if we're moving forward to heaven on earth, he's gonna give it to us more and more, little by little, inch by inch. We're gonna experience more glory as we get to the day of the full revelation of his glory. Does that make sense? And if we could just set our hearts and set our vision this way, and realize that, man, this is so much more than what we've made it. That we're, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit because from the onset of creation, God wanted a tabernacle with man. That we're a dwelling place for God because all along the way, the whole story has been about God coming and dwelling in his people. And if we could just see this is where it's going, then what we're doing right now would have so much more meaning. We'd realize that we're supposed to be tending a fire, a glory that's transcendent. That's who we are, beloved. That's who we are. Amen, let's stand. Glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The mountain of the Lord, that's Zion, will be exalted above all the mountains of the earth. The law will go forth from Zion and Jesus Christ will teach us his ways. This is where it's going. Oh, I want to make this really clear. There's there's real continuity between this age and the next. When Jesus returns, you know, the nations actually stay intact. One, one, one uh, month, we just need to do a whole month on what the next age is going to look like because there's economics, there's national governments, there's, there's real life taking place on the earth with Jesus on the planet. And that's the, that's the age where the glory will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. Ephesians 2 talks about ages to come. This is only one of the ages. Oh, but in this age, we are to manifest glory. We are jars of clay with glory in us. Just, let's just close our eyes for a moment. I just want you to just, right now just to connect to this thought. You are an earthen vessel with glory on the inside of you. God made you a tabernacle. <sighs> he made you to dwell in you, to be with you, to burn in you. Father, I'm asking for the revelation 
of what it means that individually we're your temple and corporately we're the dwelling place of God. Release that revelation to us. Spark our imaginations. Lift our vision to believe for something more than sort of just getting by day to day. Let us see the theme of Scripture, the tabernacling of God with men all through the Scripture. And let us see it as it pertains to our own lives that you, you didn't just rescue us from hell and we're sort of hanging on, but you rescued us, you cleansed us, you justified us, you sanctified us, and then you put fire in us so that we would be a temple of glory. Oh. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. Look, I'm not in a hurry to get out of here. I want the Holy Spirit to come right now. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. Blow on this room right now. Light our imaginations up with truth. Light us up. Convergence. Holy convergence. Let the fire of the Holy Spirit fall right now. Let this spot, let this place be a convergence point. Heaven and earth together. God, we're not passively waiting. We're saying we're hungry and we want your fire. We want the glory. We want to be built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit.